All right. Welcome, welcome. Uh, I have to get going right here. There's a lot of ground that we have to cover. We're going to talk about board games today. And probably you are living in the board game past, if you're anything like me anyway. You probably haven't played a new board game in quite some time. Uh, there's a lot going on in this world. But there's also a lot of old stuff going on in this world, especially, of course, the many centuries old game Go. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Go. We'll talk a lot about Go in our final segment. Uh, but we're going to begin with the world of board games right this minute. We have uh, as guests Aaron Dean, project manager for Genius Games, author of the upcoming For the Love of Board Games, and founder of the soon-to-be-built National Board Game Museum. I hope that's being built in Hartford, but I feel like it probably isn't. Uh, Eric Martin is a news editor at BoardGameGeek.com, an online database of more than 100,000 board, card, and other tabletop games with nearly 2 million registered users. All right, I'm going to ask you both the same question. Aaron Dean, I will start with you. Um, you know, in a world that has uh, games that you can play on your phone and games that you can play on uh, on laptops and other devices, and you can even watch Bandersnatch, Black Mirror on Netflix and direct the action of the plot. I mean, it just seems like board games... Uh, you know, who who wants them, who needs them? Uh, but obviously a lot of people do. G give us a sense of where we are right now. I, I should say one more thing. I think about eight years ago we did a show about board games, and it was clear that there was kind of a board game renaissance. There were new board games that, were pe that people were pretty excited about. Are we having, is there an another new board game wave happening right now? Absolutely. Um, so we are in a golden age of board gaming. Every single year, Thousands and thousands of titles of board games are coming out. More and more people are being introduced to the hobby, whether that's through a board game cafe in their local town, uh, their friends and family who are into board games, modern board gaming. So we are definitely in a, the golden age of board gaming, and it's awesome. Yeah, and Eric, is this uh, if that's the case, is it because this is a generation that was brought up with an awful lot of uh, digital entertainment and digital options, the, the, the younger generation of board gamers? Is there just kind of almost a hunger to get back to something where you hold an actual physical piece in your hand? I mean, do you have a theory about what's going on here? I don't know whether that desire has ever gone away mm -hmm. because I attend more than a dozen conventions each year. And at those conventions, there's people from 70 often down to 7 at the shows where children are allowed. Some of them don't have that. There's a range of players across the board. And you see actually at events like Gen Con, families becoming more present at those shows. Whereas several years ago, when we first started going and broadcasting from the event, we saw mostly uh, male gamers in this sort of 20 to 50 age range. And now you see more families coming. I want to get some uh, thoughts about uh, what the good board games are right now. I think an awful lot of people have five or six fairly old board games, you know, gathering some dust on, on a shelf somewhere, and there's so much stuff that's out there. So I'm going to have you both talk about that. I, I don't know, Aaron, what, g give us an example of one game that you would guide people to, toward. Absolutely. So all of the games I'll mention have been released in the last year, so they're really hot right now and they're readily available. One that I would recommend is Camel Up. It's a family game for three to eight players, and it's basically a game where you're going to be betting on camels that are racing around the track. And it's a great, great family game. Everyone who I've introduced it to loves it, and it's really easy to play and learn. 
And and obviously you don't have actual camels racing around a track. So this is a board game and somehow or other, is, is there like strategy and stuff like that? I mean, or is it just you moving camels? No, there's definitely some strategy to it. Um, you can time kind of where the camels will be. Um, there's actually a stacking mechanism. So the camels will actually stack on top of each other if they're on the same uh, space. So there's actually some strategy to which ones you want to bet on and where they're going to be. But ultimately... The player with the most money will win who bet uh, who betted correctly the most. All right, um, Eric, how about you? Give us give us one of your top picks. My favorite game of the past year is The Mind. It is a cooperative game, and cooperative games have been a huge trend recently, which emphasizes the nature of playing together. You win or lose together. In The Mind, each player has a hand of cards. The cards are numbered one to one hundred. You only have a few of those cards, and you're trying to play them in ascending order in a single discard pile, yet you can't tell anyone what your numbers are. You just have to play when you feel the time is right. So a lot of it is just staring at other people and Mm. getting the giggles and trying to read when you should do something. It's a very unusual experience. So I'm going to have you name some other games, but I think maybe before we do that, it's worth mentioning what makes a good board game. And I think there are a lot of different categories. Uh, Aaron Dean, I mean, you can start with actual the actual physical, visual appeal of something. People probably aren't going to play, are less likely to play something that's ugly or doesn't look nice, right? Right. There's so many things and aspects that go into a great board game. Components, how nice they are, whether it's, you know, cardboard coins or metal coins make a big difference. The artwork is very important. The balance between luck and strategy, where it's not too heavily on either, uh, is also important. There's so many aspects that go into it, but overall, it's where one game can kind of tap into all those aspects to deliver a really, really fun board game for people. Right, and so, and Eric, um, the game that you mentioned uh, probably isn't stunningly visual, doesn't have all kinds of really fun components. It sounds like it's cards. So what makes it so much better than, than say, you know, five other games? Mostly it's the game experience where you are staring at other people. (laughs) Good games create their own environment, their own world in which you get to inhabit for a little bit of time. So for this moment, playing the game, you're staring in everyone's eyes and trying to do something together that you wouldn't otherwise do in your daily life. There's nothing like this experience. So a good game creates its own feel and its own world, and you get to go explore that. Um, so I'm going to have you um, – well, I just, Eric, let me ask you one more thing about this, because uh, as you said in your initial description of the mind, you said it's a, a cooperative uh, game. Uh, I think there's another one that you like called Just One, which I think is also cooperative. What do we, yeah. what do we mean by cooperative game? So cooperative, you have a challenge where you are competing against the game. And, of course, many computer games have this same feel. You have an AI, something that exists outside of you, and you have some goal that you have to complete. So Just One is a party game, and together you're trying to guess hidden words. And now one person doesn't know the word. Everyone else does know the word. You each have to give a single word clue that you're going to show to this person so they can guess. But if anyone writes down the same clue, then you can't show them that. So you're trying to be unique and yet also helpful to the other player, and it gets your mind twisting in different ways. There's all sorts of cooperative games, and they all 
sort of work together. They bring this different spirit around the table since, again, you win or lose together. Right. So you're, you're not beating someone. Right. You're working with them. You're actually measured by how helpful you are, which is, you know, we need a little bit more of that maybe elsewhere in life. Um, so, uh, Aaron, give me, a, give me another example of a game that you like right now. Right now, one of my favorite games of 2018 was Treasure Island. It's a game for two to five players where you're all pirates, but one player is Long John Silver, who has hidden the treasure on the board. It's actually a dry erasable board, so when you search for the treasure, you're actually going to be writing on the physical game board. And uh, basically, you're going to be searching for that treasure, and Long John Silver, the one player on the opposite side, side of the table will be giving clues to where the treasure is but he has bluffing tokens where he can sometimes bluff about the clues so it's a deduction treasure hunting game um and and uh, eric give us uh, one more and then i want to sort of talk a little bit about the games that we maybe have loved in the past and outgrown but eric give us one more of your picks sure most of the games you mentioned have been fairly short uh fairly simple rules a more involved one is terraforming mars which has been a huge hit in the game community, it's for one to five players. It takes 90 to 120 minutes. And you represent a corporation that is trying to terraform Mars. And so you take various actions. You have to bring up the temperature on Mars and make it warm enough for people to live. And you have to have water there. You need enough energy. You need to develop the world, and but each of you are trying to do it to profit yourself. So you're you're working together with people, and yet in the end, there's only one winner based on who has done the best job for their own corporation. So I think one, there's always kind of a difficulty. Anytime you describe a game, you know, it, 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 it's hard. It's difficult. and difficult for the listener to grasp it, no matter how good you are at describing the games. And then the other issue is most of us have in our minds some pretty set and outdated ideas uh, about what a board game is. I mean, most of us have pl- played like five or six board games and, you know, still might be traditional enough or dopey enough to take out a Monopoly board on a uh, rainy afternoon. Although, let's, let's hear a critique of Monopoly in our first clip of the day. Monopoly. Everybody had Monopoly. Everybody had it. Nobody liked it. <laughs> and simple why. This is it. Because this is anybody here two and a half hours into a game of Monopoly. Here it is. Ready? I quit! It's four in the morning, Grandma. You win! I'm sitting on Baltic with crack. Don't touch me, Grandpa. She's cheating. Um, I, I'm laughing. That was Dane Cook. My version of that is uh, be, I had a bad parent moment where I beat my son. He was maybe about 10 in Stratego, like, I don't know, three times in a row, and I made him cry. <laughs> I, felt, I felt guilty about that for the rest of my life. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm guessing that you guys who are very hip and schooled in the latest board games probably agree. Uh, Aaron, Monopoly, maybe not worth the reputation it has? Definitely not. So I think everyone gravitates towards Monopoly because of its nostalgia. But when you actually dive into the gameplay, um, there's early player elimination. So one person may go bankrupt and all of a sudden they're out for the rest of the two hours of the game. That's a really um, poor mechanic of Monopoly. And the fact that it's just so luck-based. It's roll a dice, move your you know thimble or dog or whatever your piece is and land on a property. It's just not enough strategy, too much player elimination. And it's just too long for the game that it is. Yeah, Eric, do you feel that way about a lot of these sort of uh, beloved? I mean, like life is an even dumber game. I mean, there's at least a tiny bit of strategy in Monopoly, but not so much in a lot of them. 
No, and the games have changed a lot. I, I recently spoke with someone about life. There's generally a new version of life every year, but the newer versions don't have, for example, the purchase of insurance, mm-hmm. which was an option when I played in the 1970s on that version. Now that's gone, so you don't even have this mild educational element where you can learn whether insurance is a good or not purchase and how it actually works or how different things happen in that game. It's, it's a lot of games that are still popular and well-known, such as Monopoly and the Game of Life, are more a gift element than a game element. You're buying it for someone because it has a good license <laughs> and you need to get a gift for someone. And I remember playing that when I was young. Done. Right, exactly. You, and we buy it as a gift because other people should suffer the way that we suffered. So, uh, you know, Aaron, I feel like some of the drivers of this, I was mentioning before the show started that I'd been at a house party over the New Year's weekend and there were sort of people my age, I am really old, uh, and there were millennials there. And the millennials got out board games. I think they got out Settlers of Catan or maybe it was Actuaries of Catan. I don't know how many of those games there are. And, and it was kind of surprising. But, Aaron, it seems to me as though millennials do want something a little bit different in a board game. They want something that's maybe a little less controlled by the game, a little bit more controlled by the players? I would say that would definitely be true. I think a lot of modern board games have a lot more strategy than the older um, classic board games like Monopoly and Clue and Sorry. Uh, There's a lot more decision-making and interesting decisions that the players can make. And, um, you know, there's games like cooperative games, like The Mind, like Eric mentioned, where that's something that's entirely different, where you're not working against the other players, you're working as a team. There's just so many options. I have a game called Fuse, where you're actually defusing bombs together, and you have 10 minutes to defuse all the bombs in the the card deck. And it's super, like, you know, um, kind of your heart's beating, and everyone's working together to how to best use the dice to defuse the bombs. But there's just so many broad themes that board games cover now that it makes it a lot more interesting, and there's a lot more games to choose from nowadays. So, Eric, as you probably know, Aaron is working right now on the National Board Game Museum. And before I have her talk about it, Eric, um, what games would you want to see in kind of the the Hall of Fame uh, of that museum? Hmm. Interesting to choose. Games Magazine, which has been published since 1980 or so, has a Hall of Fame, and it has a lot of the classic games that people know. It's kind of a hard challenge, though, because game choices end up being very personal, Mm -hmm. and what is ideal for you is not necessarily going to be ideal for me, but it doesn't say anything necessarily about the qualities of the game, but just our preferences, the same as in books and movies and films. Sometimes hard to come to agreement on what is the best. Right, and a lot, a lot of games become kind of symbolic uh, of their moment. As opposed, like I don't know how good a game Risk is, but Risk is symbolic of a whole bunch of things, and I think it has a lot of sort of psychological associations for people who played it at certain times in their lives. And you know, there are one act plays and short stories about people playing Risk. I don't know whether that makes it a good game, but maybe it's, uh, it helps make it iconic. It's definitely an icon, but what's interesting is even those icons change. As I mentioned, there are different versions of the game of life. In 2012, there was a new version of Risk called Risk Legacy, where you would play a game and whoever won would get a reward. They would write something on the board, or you'd add new cards to the game or new elements to it, and then the next game changed. Hmm. So you would have a whole campaign, and it wasn't just starting over again. It was like the entire world 
was changing over time as a result of what you did. Wow. All right, so Aaron, uh, pitch us the museum. T- tell us a little bit ab- about the plan, first of all. So the National Board Game Museum came out of, I, you know, last summer was looking through, you know, for board game museums in the United States and not really anything was popping up. And for something that's so physical and something that's on the the rise right now, I was like, there has to be a museum that celebrates this hobby. So hence the National Board Game Museum was born. Uh, We're about to have our first board meeting. We formed our board of directors. We're filing for nonprofit status right now. But basically we want this museum to celebrate the hobby of board gaming, not only the modern board gaming, but classics also and have rotating exhibits where every time you come in there's something new there's a new game you can learn about and uh, we definitely want the museum to be a please touch museum not a don't touch museum so many museums you go to you know you just look at a painting and go to the next one and you're not actually interacting with anything Uh, and we definitely want this to be a museum of interaction and and do you have a location picked out yet we're definitely thinking the St. Louis region because I'm from the St. Louis region. Um, and there's a lot of things that are going on in St. Louis for the board gaming hobby. Uh, one is that Geekway to the West, which brings in a lot of uh, board gamers each year, is a convention that is every single May. Uh, Miniature Market, which is the largest board game warehouse in the United States, is located here in St. Louis. We have a board game bar and cafe, and our board gaming community here is very large. Uh, I still think Hartford might be a better location. I can oh, get you okay. a nice spot right next to the Yard Goats Stadium, uh, and I guarantee you the land is cheaper than what you're going to get in St. Louis. So um, so I, the other thing that occurs to me, Aaron, is that one thing that people seem to like to do, you know, I guess maybe Jumanji is sort of an example of that. They want to actually be in the game that they love, right? I mean, they want it to be as big as they are uh, and not the size of the board. So is that, that part is that part of the plan? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, my vision for the museum, I could see life-size battleship where the pegs are like 12 inches long. You actually have to stand up to play (laughs) it. I could see life-size Candyland where you walk through it and you actually physically move your own body uh, to play the game. There's definitely going to be some larger-than-life board games there. Um, Eric, I just want to come back to one thing. Uh, um, I'm wondering also in the world that we live in right now, and some of these games, I was watching video reviews of some of these games and stuff like that. They look kind of deluxe. Are, are board games kind of more expensive, even adjusted for inflation, than maybe they were, you know, 100 years ago? Some of them definitely are, primarily because they're produced by companies other than Hasbro. Mm-hmm. Hasbro works on a scale of hundreds of thousands of copies, whereas a lot of modern game companies will produce 5,000 of something or 10,000. And if that sells really well, then we'll do another print run. So that naturally leads to higher cost per unit. But some games as well are using higher quality components because they're an attractive physical element on their own. One game I know on Aaron and, and mine, both our list, is Azul. It's a tile drafting game, so you're trying to build a tile, which of course is something you could think of doing in your bathroom. It's not like a fun game, but this one is because you're trying to take all the best tiles for yourself and do better than everyone else, and the components are these, these really high-quality tactile pieces that are beautiful to hold. They could have been cardboard, and the game would have been $10 cheaper, but the game looks so great, everyone stops and looks at it. So, I mean, are there, Eric, games that cost, I don't know, like 100 or 150 bucks for a board game? Yes. Yes, definitely, all the time. And many of them 
are pitched on Kickstarter as crowdfunding projects for people who want something special or something different and are willing to put their money up for it. Um, so, um, I, just before we uh, conclude this part of the conversation, Aaron, uh, it seems to me, obviously, that the uh, Game Board Museum, which will probably be in Hartford, I think that's kind of evolving as a consensus here on the show, um, is uh, you're going to want to document the history of some of these games. Some of these games actually have pretty interesting origin stories. Tell us a little bit about Candyland. Yes, yeah, so Candyland was actually developed by a school teacher who was suffering from polio, and she was in a ward with other children with polio. And she actually created Candyland to be an escape for these patients, for them to escape this horrible, you know, illness they were going through and, you know, be immersed in this Candyland. And it's, so, yeah, it was actually a really interesting story. And she actually pitched the game to, is it, I forget if it's Milton Bradley or Parker Brothers, but she pitched the game to them and they fell in love with it. And now it's what it is today. So there you got a story to tell. So uh, we've been talking to Eric Martin, news editor at BoardGameGeek.com, an online database for more than 100,000 board, card, and other tabletop games with me- nearly 2 million registered uh, users. You could be 2 million in one if you check out BoardGameGeek right now. Uh, and uh, Aaron Dean, who's going to join us also for the second segment here. Um, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Dean is project manager for Genius Games, author of the upcoming For the Love of Board Games, and founder of the soon-to-be-built-in hard National Board Game <laughs> Museum. We'll be back with more after this. Presenting the Cones of Dunshire, a brand new gaming experience. 8 to 12 players, two wizards, a maverick, the arbiter, two warriors, a corporal, and a ledgerman. Oh boy. Now the object is to accumulate cones. Four cones wins, but in order to get a cone, you have to build a civilization. The other amazing thing is the challenge play. Actually, let me tell you more about the trivia cards, because you're going to need to know about roadblocks first. No, never mind. Think about the challenge play. is It's basically the game in reverse. Then you roll three dice to see how many dice you roll with. Oh, 16. Perfect. Lots of choices. Are the cones a metaphor? Well, yes and no. What, what, is, what is this called again? The Cones of Dunshire. All right. That's uh, Adam Scott on uh, Parks and Rec describing uh, his incredibly complicated game. Uh, there's a similar scene in the play of the Norman Conquest, where one of the characters is primarily a board game inventor. Uh, joining us in studio right now is Matt Fantastic, founder of Elm City Games in New Haven, as well as the New Haven Game Makers Guild. He's a board game designer, design instructor, publisher, and industry consultant. Also still with us is Aaron Dean, project manager for Genius Games and founder of the soon-to-be-built-in-Hartford National Board Game Museum. Take that, New Haven. We've got the National Board Game Museum coming in up here. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, you know, I think that clip kind of does – it demonstrates some of the difficulty even that I think we have on a show like this, was when you try to describe a game that nobody can see, uh, it, it's a little bit difficult. But you guys both have a lot of experience with this whole question of how to design a game. Matt, you've been an instructor of game design and development at Quinnipiac University. So, I don't know. What are some basic elements of good game design? Uh, I mean, it's kind of all over the place, right? Because the most important thing that we need to be worried about is what are our design goals, right? So a game that you're making for three-year-olds to learn how to take turns is going to be very different 
than a game you are making for nerds to spend an entire weekend simulating, you know, uh, the the battle of Helm's Deep, right? Uh, so, so really, it's about thinking about what your goal is and then looking at ways to create that experience. Wait a minute. Is there a game like that? Because a lot of my relatives are from Rohan. Uh, I want to <laughs> play that there, game. There are lots of games, actually, in the uh, Lord of the Rings universe. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's gratifying to know. You know, I mean, Aaron, I think another thing that I've noticed just in my, my faulty preparation for this show is that um, there's also something that wasn't around years ago, which is sort of there are kind of auteurs and superstars. You know, there are, it actually means something to say this game is by Phil Walker Harding, right? There are people who are kind of known at this point definitely so when i wrote for the love of board games i recruited the top board game designers in the industry so you know matt leacock means something to people in the industry it means you know um something that they can rely on they can uh they can identify with his designs and definitely designers are definitely becoming recognizable with their names and, and there's also, uh, Aaron, something I discovered called the Spiel des Jahres. I probably am saying it incorrectly, but it's kind of the Oscars of board games. Absolutely, yeah. So every year there's the new uh, game of the year uh, in German. That's actually what it means. And, um, yeah, it's kind of like our Oscars in a sense. And whoever receives that award, you can just expect their game to blow up. Um, so, Matt, um, I'm also guessing, uh, I mean, you teach this, you do this, you work with people who are trying to develop board games. It seems like kind of a crowded field these days. I mean, you know, when I was, you know, I don't know, when I was a teenager, there probably weren't more than 25 board games available in stores where you might buy them. Is this a problem now, getting noticed? Uh, well, so the way I like, I liken it to music in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. um, where you have kind of the huge major labels, which is going to be like your Hasbro, your Mattel, uh, putting out, you know, Monopoly variants. And that is uh, definitely more rarefied air. Then you have uh, sort of the mid-tier, which is a lot of the popular hobby games like uh, the Matt Leacocks and things like that. Uh, and then you have this massive amount of, you know, amateur hobbyist uh, sort of stuff going on. And to make the transition... Uh, up that ladder can be incredibly difficult. Um, uh, you know, Aaron, there's a way, though, in which you know, the Internet, obviously, and digital culture in general have offered people, as we said at the top of the show, so many choices of things that they could do that are not board games. But the other thing the Internet is good at, I would think, anyway, is helping people find each other. So if you want somebody to play the Cones of Dunshire, that's Adam Scott's uh, fictitious game there, uh, you know, you probably have a better chance of reaching people than you ever had before. Is this kind of how people find each other in this world? Definitely. Um, you know, Board Game Geek is a great way to gather around a certain board game. There's comments and threads under each game. And also Facebook, which is really big um, social media-wise for board games. Uh, you know, a lot of games have their own Facebook groups that people can join and have, you know, let's say 500 members. And people can gather around that game that they all know and love and ask questions about the rules, share pictures, and really engage with one another. Um Matt, maybe we could just say a little bit about what you're doing down there uh, in in your uh, Elm City group. This, as I understand it, this is a place where if I if I'm developing a game, I could actually get people to try it. Uh, yeah, so Elm City Games is a game library. We actually started as a game cafe, and longer story short, we ended up moving to a new location and didn't reopen the kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, but we have an enormous library, about 1,200 different games, uh, tons of events. Um, people come in, pay day passes, get memberships. And it's a great way for people to get together. Um, there are similar establishments, you know, all over the world 
but uh, you know, in New Haven, we uh, have Elm City Games. And oh, sorry, as well, far oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm so imagine that I am developing a game, uh, my own version of Cones of Dunshire or whatever. And so I can go there, and I you'll help me find people who will try to play the game and see if it works and see if it's good. Yeah. So we have uh, New Haven Game Makers Guild that I'm one of the co-founders of, which happens to do most of our things at Elm City Games because mm-hmm. you know I own it and it's pretty convenient. Uh, but uh, that is a you know semi-professional group of you know people working on games. We have people that are full-time designers. We have people that are you know published uh, hobbyists, and then we have people that have no idea what they're doing and just want to come hang out. Uh, and, you know, we're pretty open to everybody. Um, Wednesday nights is the sort of standard uh, basic thing at Elm City Games in New Haven. Uh, so if you're interested, just show up on a Wednesday night and come play test. How do you set a tone there, though? Like, is there, I would be concerned that people would go, hey, your game's really stupid. <laughs> well, I mean, part of that is really just top down building a culture. Um, you know, I run a relatively tight ship mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of not tolerating that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it, it's ultimately, it's a bunch of people getting together to try to help each other make better games. You know, the, the unfortunate side of working in tabletop is that you kind of need people sitting around a table to, you know, play that game <laughs> to figure out if it works. You know, Aaron, as I'm listening to Matt talk, another thing that's occurring to me is, you know, this term that's developed over the last couple of decades, uh, so-called third space. You know, this notion that obviously we're uh, toggling back and forth between work and home, work and home. And and that one of the things that we crave is another space that's not dedicated to that. It seems like board games, physically played, non-digitally played board games, Aaron, really are a way to maybe meet that craving. Absolutely. So, Board games allow you to unplug and go to your local game store or buddy's house and really unplug and put that phone down and really engage with one another face to face. So it's definitely another, you know, uh, activity you can look forward to each week. Um, Matt, I, I gather like Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons has been around forever, um, but there's like yet another Dungeons and Dragons renaissance happening. Yeah, so actually uh, Dungeons & Dragons is probably the biggest it's ever been. Um, it's been in sort of the cultural zeitgeist since, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. You know, I, I remember the cartoon show when I was a kid. Um, but now it is, you know, bigger than ever. Um, I think helpful. Uh, it, it's just there's a lot of media that talks about it. You know, it's really in the cultural zeitgeist. Well, and uh, that- actually, we have a pretty good example of that. There's this show people may have seen called Stranger Things. A shadow grows on the wall behind you. Swallowing you in darkness. It is almost here. What is it? The Demogorgon! We're oh, deep Will, your action! I don't know! Fireball him! I'd have to roll a 13 or higher! Too risky, cast a protection. Fireball him! Cast protection! The Demogorgon is tired of your silly human bickering! It stops towards you! Boom! Fireball him! Oh, no, stop! Boom! Cast protection! Ignores in anger! I mean, Matt, culture works in so many different ways, but one of the ways that it does, it works is in looking back. Uh, and it seems like that's what you're talking about and that's what we're hearing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, D&D has never really gone away, but it definitely sort of had these uh, big peaks uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, and then again, you know, now. Um, and, you know, that that's a pretty accurate depiction of, you know, 12-year-olds playing D&D <laughs> even today. Uh, you know, you're ultimately sitting around a table telling a story together. Uh, collaboratively, and it's something that is really easy and appealing to lots of people. And, you know, D&D is a wonderful framework for doing that. 
Um, Aaron, you know, in our final segment, we're going to talk about Go, which has definitely a spectator element at this point. But how much of that is there generally uh, in board games? Do people like to watch other people play board games? Yeah, I mean, there's a game, there's actually a show on YouTube that is not producing new episodes, but people still gravitate it gravitate towards it called tabletop with will wheaton where people it's literally a show where you watch people play board games for an hour or two hours and people really love the commentary and enjoy watching how to plays and how to learn the game and there's definitely uh you know a a strong uh likeliness and watching those videos all right, Matt, it's time to ask you about your games. Describe one of the games that you've designed and try not to sound like Adam Scott. <laughs> yeah, so uh, one that we have coming up that I'm really excited about that's getting shown at New York Toy Fair uh, next month is called Team 3, and it's being published by Brain Games. And basically uh, the idea is that we are the three monkeys, the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil monkeys, and obviously we just started, decided to start a construction company. Uh, and you know, clearly the blind monkey is the one actually doing the building. Uh, so you have these uh, colored blocks in different shapes, and you have a monkey who can't talk looking at the plans, trying to communicate that to a monkey who then is going to be giving verbal instructions to the monkey who can't see that is then trying to build it. Uh, you had me at monkeys. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you this. Um, is there also a, like so that you do this and other people are doing this and maybe some of the smaller game companies, you know, put out some of this stuff. Is there a way in which I know is there a parallel between that and, you know, the people who say I used to see, see Springsteen when he was just playing small clubs. I mean, is there a way in which if Hasbro buys your game or anybody's game, if one of the big companies does, does it kind of wreck it or is it sort of a feeling that it's been taken away from that tight community of, of game players? Uh, I mean, I think there are people that are jerks about that stuff, no matter what the, the medium is. But generally speaking, I think those of us in tabletop board games are just really excited about uh, what we're making, what we're sharing, the experiences that we are having and creating. And so seeing that go out to a wider audience uh, doesn't really bother us too much. Um, yeah, Aaron, how about that? In the, in the way that you see this world, is there kind of a distinction between the games that exist within the more tightly knit world of game players versus the ones that go mass market? Yeah, there's definitely a difference. Uh, you know, like I mentioned before earlier in the episode between, uh, you know, very heavily luck based games and strategy based games. Uh, but from my experience, you know, um, everyone who goes into this industry does it because they're passionate and because they love it, not because they're trying to get rich. You know, like uh, Matt was saying, you know, people do it because they're just really, you know, excited about their designs. All right, Matt, tell me about one more of your games. Uh, I, we, I think we have a choice between Before There Were Stars and Stoner Parking Lot. Well, I think uh, for, for, you can look up Stoner Parking Lot on the Internet if okay. you're interested. Uh, so Before There Were Stars is a myth-building game where you are rolling dice that are have uh, – the pips are actually stars. So you're creating the night sky. Then you're building constellations. And you're using those to create a mythology of your own people. So you're kind of going through either the hero's journey or sort of an in the beginning all the way up until the end of the days. And you're using those constellations to uh, sort of anchor the stories that you are telling that are creating the culture of your people. Um, it's a non-cooperative, semi-competitive storytelling game. Um, you know, published actually by uh, Smirk and Laughter, which is a company based in Newtown, uh, pretty close to here. 
Oh, that's very cool. Uh, all right. I'm being told we need to. Can we take Jen? Can we? Do we have time to just take that quick call there? I think that might be. Yeah, he says yes. Josh says we can do that. All right. So we have Jen, I think, calling in, uh, a librarian, I believe. Hi, you're on the air. Hello. I'm Jen Bartlett from Manchester Public Library, and we, we still have wonderful thoughts of you, Colin, when you came out a couple of years ago and had a wonderful experience at our library. So we, we appreciate that. It's a fond um, memory of mine as well. Oh, that's that's wonderful to hear. We're, yeah. we're cooking great things up here. Particularly when you gave me fine amnesty. That was really awesome. Anyway, yeah, tell us about board games. So, um, and hello to Matt and Aaron, too. Um, wonderful to be talking on the air with both of you, too. Um, there's, a, there's so many interesting things going on here in Connecticut, and Matt would definitely back that up. Um, and we're really blessed here in Connecticut. We have multiple board game cafes, we have multiple game stores, um, and lots of outlets that people are able to go out and game. Um, here in Manchester, we've built a community, really, and have one of the most popular board game groups for adults at a library, um, maybe even New England. Um, and every, you know, we invite local publishers to come out. I've talked to Matt about coming out. Um, we have local publishers. So we're providing all kinds of opportunities too, and not just here, but in many, many, many different libraries across the state. Some um, specialize in D&D for teens. Uh, there's a new initiative with Games Workshop, which is a miniatures mm. uh, company. Wow, this uh, this sounds big. I'm coming out to the Manchester Public Library tonight to play Stoner Parking Lot. Uh, <laughs> but I uh, we have to go here. I'll get in a lot of trouble with Josh if we don't. Thanks so much to, um, to Aaron Dean, first of all, uh, who is, of course, project manager for Genius Games, author of the upcoming For the Love of Board Games, and founder of the soon-to-be-built in Hartford, Connecticut, National Board Game Museum. Uh, Matt Fantastic, founder of Elm City Games. Games in New Haven. Go check them out, as well as the New Haven Game Makers Guild. He's a board game designer, design instructor, publisher, and industry consultant. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk about the reason we don't see producer Josh Nalea anymore. That would be the game Go. Keep playing your board games. I don't care. Okay, so my friends and I are playing Trump Tower Moscow, which is like our favorite new board game. And I've already captured Ivanka Spa and Putin's Penthouse. So if I can just roll a six. A three. Oh no, I landed on pick a Muller card. Let's see what it says. You are indicted for money laundering. Lose two turns. No. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bob Woodward. On tomorrow's show, the White Album. And now, back to Colin. All right. I think the genesis for this game partly is that uh, when our producer Josh Nalea began recuperating from a medical procedure, he discovered the board game Go. And um, Josh is not a person who does things by half measures. If he's in, he's in. And apparently that is very much a facet of being fascinated by uh, Go. We're going to talk to Frank Lance, director of the NYU Game Center, where he's taught game design for over 12 years. Frank Lance, welcome to our conversation. Hi, great to be here. So uh, you probably have to do this occasionally. To a listener right now who doesn't, who's never heard of Go or doesn't know one thing about it, I don't know, can you give us like a 60-second uh, elevator pitch on it? Sure, sure. So Go is 
to East Asia, uh, what chess is to, to Europe and, and the West. Um, it is a strategy board game. Uh, it's played on a 19 by 19 grid uh, with black and white stones. One player is black, one player is white. And you take turns placing stones on the intersection points of the grid. So unlike chess, the pieces don't move. You just place them. And, uh, and over time, the board fills up, and your goal is to surround territory. Um, and you can capture the, uh, the other player's stones by, by surrounding them. Uh, and that's basically it. That's the whole game. So our producer, Josh Nalea, who's become somewhat deranged on the subject of Go, says there are more possible variations of moves on a Go board than there are atoms in the universe. Can that be possible? Yeah, of course, but that's easy to do. <laughs> that's, that's how exponents work. You can get there with all kinds of games. That's also probably true of you know, Magic the Gathering and, uh, and uh, any number of games. All right. But there is something about Go. There is, and I, well, there's many things about Go. One of the things that I've sort of sensed in just trying to learn a little bit about it is it's, it's maybe a little bit different from chess in the sense that, or at least the assumption has always been, that the personality of the player is really important somehow, that it, it sort of does a mind meld with all of the parts of the game that are purely mathematical. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. I, I th- the the essence of Go is its simplicity. Uh, I think that's the 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 thing that is most characteristic of Go. It's like the rules. I mean, I've described the rules to you. You basically know all the rules of Go, right? <laughs> There's a few extra rules there, but but the placing stones one at a time, being able to capture your opponent by completely surrounding a stone or a group of stones, and and that's pretty much it. it it's not like chess. Um, in which the, the com- there's some complexity in learning how the different pieces move. Um, Go is about the ultimate simplicity of the rules, and yet somehow it leads to this really complex, surprising, and unpredictable behavior of, of the stones on the board. So, so I think maybe the personality of the player comes in in this ability to extrapolate from this real simple set of rules to deeper level patterns, right? It's about heuristics, rules of thumb, um, understanding kind of like deep, subtle patterns that emerge uh, out of these simple rules. So in that sense, it does feel um, very, very human. It's about uh, your perception, how you, how you can see deeply into a simple situation and, and kind of like read larger patterns from it. Um, this is obviously, as Frank has suggested, a game that is uh, is Asian in origin. And Henry Kissinger famously said that you couldn't understand the, the military strategy and diplomatic thinking of China without understanding at least something about Go. It's that deeply steeped into the con- culture. Let's hear Chinese-born professional Go player and now European champion uh, Fan Wei describing how Go is like a mirror. I'm Go professional player. I'm also European champion. When I was 18, I want to change my life. I want to try to forget the goal. But it's impossible. Because all the things I learned in my life is this with goal. It looks like a mirror. I see the goal, I also see myself. For me, goal is a real life. He looks into a, uh, he plays Go, it's like looking into a mirror and seeing himself. Frank, react to that. Uh, well, you know, when I play Go, I see uh, a lazy amateur who doesn't have the discipline <laughs> to get really good at the game. So that's, that's, how, I, I, that's how I self-reflect. Um, 
at, at some point in my life, I'd love to dedicate myself to, to being a, a better player, um, achieving the kind of level that, uh, that, that really uh, dedicated and disciplined players have. But uh, uh, for me, it's just an, uh, it's an endless reminder of, uh, of, how, um, of how stupid I am. <laughs> So the, that clip that we played is from a documentary about AlphaGo. This is uh, um, a Go program, Go playing program, uh, invented by an offshoot of Google. Um, and so, f- as I understand it, for a long time there was a feeling that that Go was going to be harder to, for AI to conquer than chess, even maybe partly because of that notion that Go had intuitive qualities uh, that somehow or other came into play. So um, there have been these sort of John Henry type uh, tests as there were in, in chess, man against machine. Uh, Frank, what's happened when they do that? Yeah, no, so it, it took... Uh it took two decades beyond when um, chess fell to, to AI um, to, to achieve that in, in Go. And now um, it's the last board game uh, that will ever be dominated by human players uh, versus AI. So that's kind of a, of a milestone. Well, stoner um, parking yeah. lot maybe. But anyway, continue. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I do think that the, the reason is um, it does have to do with the idea that Go, because it was – uh, so exponentially large, um, the number of possible games were so great. It, it just uh, it made it so that it didn't lend itself to the kind of um, straightforward AI approaches of just reading down the game tree move by move and projecting out the consequences of every move in a very straightforward way. Instead, you needed to be able to evaluate positions using deeper knowledge about patterns and these heuristics um, but now that is the way AI is moving. I mean, that's the, the idea of machine learning uh, and, and neural nets is, is that they are, um, they embody a lot of knowledge uh, in the form of, of patterns and, and deeper understanding of, uh, of, of positional value um, in ways that are every bit as mysterious as the way humans do it. We don't really know... <laughs> Even when we have a successful kind of machine learning uh, AI, we don't exactly know what's going on inside the box. And, and uh, I think that's an interesting lesson about how thinking works. Right. So uh, the ultimate kind of John Henry confrontation, I think it took place in 2016. It involved uh, putting this program against Lee Sidal, uh, who uh, is the, the ultimate uh, best Go player in the world. Uh, and what happened then? Uh, well, uh, the, the name of the program was AlphaGo, mm-hmm. and uh, AlphaGo uh, beat Le Chadal in a, in, a, in, a, in a series of games. It was eh, kind of close, but it was also clear that, that AlphaGo was, was, you know, very, you know, very, very good and much, much better. Um, and uh, it was kind of extraordinary, right? It was, uh, it, it was, a, it, it was some, there's some, something poignant about it, obviously, when we, when we kind of hand over the, the crown. Uh, but there's also something beautiful about it. Uh, for people who study Go, because really what you want is to understand the game. You want to understand the truth of what are the best moves. And here we were seeing a higher level truth than we had been able to achieve on our own, uh, just humans playing against other humans. So there was something uh, quite extraordinary about it. Um, And then AlphaGo, um, they went back and and kind of uh, uh, messed around with it. And and the the next version of it was called AlphaZero, which surprisingly used 
no, no, no prior knowledge. See, AlphaGo had all of the thousands of years of, of uh, Go, human Go knowledge built into it, but AlphaZero had nothing. It learned everything. It just learned the rules of the game, and then it played itself until it was um, the best. And, uh, and that's, again, kind of like a surprising uh, insight into what maybe the future of AI is going to be. We're almost out of time, but was there any part of you that was a little bit sad uh, about the, the triumph of AlphaGo? I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit of a contrarian, and to me, this was going to happen. It was always obvious that as mysterious and beautiful as Go is, there's nothing magical about it. It's just a very, very large version of, of something like tic-tac-toe. It's just a problem. And it was obvious to me that eventually this would happen. I was just, I felt glad to be alive when it did. I felt like it was an interesting historical moment, and I was excited to be present for it. Well, Frank Lance, thanks so much for talking to us uh, about this, and thanks for your contributions to the show. Director of the NYU Game Center, where he's taught, taught game design for over 12 years. And, of course, special thanks to Josh Nalea, our producer, who unfortunately is completely addicted to Go. We're actually sending him after this show to the Copper Beach Institute. He's going to just sit there and meditate for a few months. This is like when he was hooked on phonics. Remember that? He was hooked on phonics. It was bad. It was bad. All right, so we'll be back tomorrow. we get another show, and then another show after that. That's sort of what happens here. I guess it's a little bit like Go, but then isn't everything a little bit like Go? Thanks for listening today, and go out and play a new board game.